This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we're talking about this guy named Count von Zinzendorf. Fun to say, even more fun to talk about his life and practice. Uh, We're talking about him and the Moravians. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. It's going to be a great show today, guys. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about. We're going to be talking about Count von Zinzendorf. We've got Michael Reardon, who is back with us once again. Uh, but before I introduce him and the subject matter, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. If you want to support the channel, there are links in the description where you can do so. Uh, top two links, I've got Patreon and PayPal. You can jump on there on Patreon and PayPal uh, and give. If you want to give on PayPal, it's like a one-time gift. But if you want to give on Patreon, it's a reoccurring gift. And as low as five bucks a month on Patreon, you get access to extra content. I released a piece of content that explains why that there's a deer head behind me that is like wearing a human body and has covered in tattoos. Roundtree was like, you got to explain this to people, buddy. So so I, I kind of went through the remnant space and kind of showed you guys some of the artwork back here and kind of explained why I have it in the background. Uh, we got testimony videos from our conference of people who got healed uh, and even delivered uh, in, in our uh, last Patreon upload. So get some extra nuggets, some behind the scenes stuff. But without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to my guest today and my co-host. Michael Roundtree is on the right. Michael Reardon is on the left. I'm constantly surrounded by Michaels. Like, we need a new plague. Dude. We need less Michaels in the world. Get a hint, bro. Uh, you should have not these Michaels, been named Michael. Michaels. Your life would have been what? so much more fulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Oh, I should have been named Michael. You should have. It's yeah. it's, it's kind of. Well, I am often name. told my parents made a mistake. I just I don't think that was the one people are talking about. Michael Ouch. Reardon, uh, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry? As I digress with jokes. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me uh, back, guys. So. I'm the academic dean of Canada Christian College, which is a mid-sized seminary about 30 minutes east of Toronto. I'm also the director of the Eckstein Institute for Jewish Christian Relations. And as for ministry, I'm with our youth group every uh, Saturday night. And I also, on an ad hoc basis, uh, do new believers. Excellent. Can guys, I think I might have had like an audio problem right as I was asking you to introduce yourself. Roundtree, can I get you to test your microphone so I can make sure test, that I can hear? Test, test, test. Okay, I can, I can hear, hear things. Fantastic. Okay. I was like disconnecting my, my Bluetooth speaker as that was going on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Miller. Or right, Miller, I just called you Miller. It's like okay. I want you to be named Michael. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, well, so Michael Reardon, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about. Zinzendorf, obviously. Maybe you could just give us uh, an introduction, help us know, like, what are you hoping people take away from studying the life of Count 
Uh, I've always call, heard him call Count Zinzendorf. Is, I guess it's more correct to say Von Zinzendorf. Of course, it's it's always fun to put Vaughn in front of anyone's name, like Josh Von Lewis, uh, yeah, I, Michael Von Rauchery. Uh, that, 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 that doctor from the Marvel Von Doom, like Doom, the bad guy from Fantastic Four, pretty sure you put Vaughn in front of his name. I don't know. It's more fun. Tell us about him. Why'd you, why'd you write about him? Yeah, so that was probably one thing I should have brought up in the introduction. So I wrote my master's thesis on Zinzendorf. Uh, but particularly what I'm interested in with him, um, I guess we could look at three things. The first is the fact that he is one of the first individuals uh, post-Reformation who's very interested in ecumenism. So uh, promoting both the invisible and visible uh, unity of the body of Christ. Uh, secondly... Mm-hmm. Uh, while reformers and later Protestants were very interested in arguing about doctrine and theology, um, and, and in many cases actually killing each other based off of these disputations, uh, Zinzendorf was highly interested in um, uh, the missionary uh, missionary movement. So he's one of the first Protestants to send out missionaries in very high percentages. So, for example, you look at other Protestants in the 18th century. The ratios are normally, you know, one to 7,000 out of larger denominations. Uh, but with Zinzendorf, as we'll likely see throughout this episode, he, um, his ratios in his community were one in 60, even one in 40, according to some sources. So he was highly interested in evangelism, which obviously today, uh, for those who identify as evangelicals, is very important. And then thirdly, I'm quite interested in his rearrangement of Christianity from what became an increasingly intellectual exercise, especially within Lutheran circles, uh, and a turn toward what he called a religion of the heart, that Christianity should be a outlook that is particularly interested in a personal and affectionate and loving relationship, both with God, but also with fellow believers, regardless if they come from the same theological or denominational uh, outlooks. So for those three reasons, I think he's a really interesting individual, and I hope that uh, the viewers today and the viewers uh, in later recorded versions of this episode are both edified and blessed by the content. Yeah, well, I think his life is uh, pretty interesting. The life of the Moravians, what took place um, there uh, in Germany, uh, is it's a pretty fantastic story. Uh, I mean, I don't even think this was mentioned in the thesis, but there are stories of the Moravians like selling themselves into slavery to reach slaves. I mean, we're talking about radical missions work, okay? We're talking about people who sold themselves into slavery to get the gospel out there. So these people, in, in no, no uncertain terms, were expressing a level of fruit and a level of, man, Christ-likeness that um, I don't hear about in history very often. So I'm excited to jump into the subject, but maybe we should start with uh, Zinzendorf and early life, uh, his upbringing, before we dive into some of the, the nitty-gritties of what was taking place with ecumenical works. Sure, that would be great. And, and honestly, his life and lineage is almost as impressive as his ministry. So he was born in uh, May of 1700 to one of the oldest aristocratic families in Europe. So he was the 22nd generation of the Zinzendorf House, which was one of the 12 main aristocratic houses in Europe. Um, he traces his lineage to one of the Holy Roman emperors uh, named Maximilian I. Uh, in the 15th or 16th century was when Maximilian lived. 
Um, he was born into extreme uh, privilege and wealth and power. Uh, he was ranked among the imperial counts, which was the highest rank that a person could attain to in German aristocracy of the 18th century. So he had his whole life set before him. And there's actually a really wonderful documentary that's available for free on YouTube for those of you who are interested after um, this podcast. And it's called The Rich Young Ruler Who Said Yes. And really, this is the exact perfect way to describe Zinzendorf. He had the whole world set before him. Um, he had no want for anything, uh, but he gave it all up and eventually wow. actually died bankrupt <laughs> um, wow. because of his love and desire to serve the Lord. Uh, so in his early years, he was already a prodigy. Um, at the age of four, he memorized Luther's smaller catechism, uh, which is not so small. <laughs> so uh, at the age of six, there were Swedish uh, armies that invaded his castle. And they were, uh, they were basically trying to find supplies on their way to go fight a battle. And when they were going through the castle, they eventually found young Zinzendorf doing his morning devotionals as a six-year-old boy. And they were so moved by the fact that he was praying rather than being frightened by them. They actually put down everything they did. They came to him. They asked him to speak about Christ. And then they prayed alongside him and left the castle without stealing anything. Um, at the age of 10. And these are amazing stories, right? You want, you, you want to interject something there? This book, this is the smaller catechism, mm-hmm. right? And it has with explanation. So maybe there's a little bit of extra stuff going on in here, but. But this is the smaller catechism. And you're saying at the age of four, he memorized this thing? Yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> yes. And this is um, and this is spoken about by multiple biographers. I'm not trying to create <laughs> some sort of amazing history here. Like this is this is historical fact. Um, at the age of 10, he was sent to the Patagogium, which was a uh, pietist boarding school. And while he was there, um, he he had some various run ins with children. He was bullied here and there. Uh, But while he was there, he was able to uh, give public speeches in ancient Greek. He was able to extemporize fluently in Latin. So basically off the top of his head, he could speak in Latin. He attained to a fluency in French that was on par with his native German. Um, He was a gifted poet. And this is um, uh, demonstrated by the fact that by the time he died, he wrote over 2000 hymns. in his final year of boarding school. So just imagine right now what you were doing in your final year of high school. You don't need to say it out loud, but just imagine that. In his final year of high school, he established a knighthood called the Order of the Grain of Mustard Seed, which was wholly devoted to ecumenism and the unifying of the body of Christ. He started it with himself and five friends. By the time of his death, this grew to include cardinals from the Roman Catholic Church, uh, bishops from the Anglican Church, the governor of Georgia, as in the United States state of Georgia, um, Native American chiefs, such as the, uh, and I, I can't pronounce his name properly, uh, but the chief of the Creek Nation at the time of his life, um, and multiple other notable individuals. For example, the King of Denmark <laughs> was, was a member of the Order of the Grain of Mustard Seed. This was an, institu- this was an organization that he created while he was a senior in high school. <laughs> so, mm. so this is the type of individual that we're discussing. A prodigy born into ultimate privilege could have done anything he wanted in the Holy Roman Empire uh, related to a former Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and he gave all that up to serve the Lord and die penniless. Wow. So quite a remarkable individual. Uh, and that's kind of a run through of his early life before he enters into ecclesial ministry. Yeah, 
that's uh, that's pretty impressive. Well, so I, I want to talk a little bit about his theological commitments because you talked about, okay, so age four, he's memorizing uh, the Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran. Smaller uh, catechism. Smaller catechism. Yes. And then he also, though, he starts this ecumenical network that includes Catholic bishops. And this touches on, I mean, you can't get more different than Lutheran and Catholic, right? Um, it, it touches on, I think, a perception of, uh, of just even that word ecumenical, that it basically means you don't have a backbone, you don't stand for anything, just everybody gets in the club, yeah, bring on in the Catholics, just bring on the Eastern Orthodox, bring on every denomination, and then what do you even believe? And, um, and so that's the perception about it, of course. And so what, what were his theological commitments? Were there hills that he died on, theologically speaking? It's a great question. And there are absolutely a few doctrinal hills. Um, but before going to the hills, I just want to mention one item, which is he was very distressed by the doctrinal disputation of his time period. So again, you're living in an era where religious wars are still happening, albeit less than they did during Luther's life. Um, and there's still uh, wide divides with Christians being not only excommunicated, but actually banished from the Holy Roman Empire, which actually happens to Zinzendorf later in his life as well. And so it's within this context that he's striving and desirous of a unified body of Christ. He takes John 17 very seriously, um, the Lord's Prayer, that they would all be one so the world would know um, that Christ sent out the, the apostles and disciples and, and later Christians. And so for, for, from his standpoint, doctrinal, um, doctrinal unity pales in comparison to a unity that is first and foremost prioritizing a personal affectionate relationship with God. And so he calls this a religion of the heart. And so he talks about actually when he meets uh, Cardinal Noels, who's one of the main Roman Catholic interlocutors during his life, he mentions that at first they're trying to convert each other, but eventually they cease trying to convert each other and they plumb the depths of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ together in fellowship and communion. And so first and foremost, that is his outlook. And, and, you know, regardless of whether one wants to say that's right or wrong, that's simply his outlook. That first and foremost, we prioritize the personal loving relationship with God. Mm -hmm. But that being said, he did have hills that he died on. For example, uh, Christ is God. So his Christology was exceptionally strong and it's basically central to his entire theological project. Um, so there would be people that he's not going to engage in ecumenism with, for example, modern day Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but really anyone that denies um, the, the full deity and humanity of Christ. Um, and on the humanity side, for instance, there is an individual who comes to his community of Heron Hut in 1726 who denies that Christ has a human soul or, or human spirit, depending if you're a dichotomist who believes that man has two parts or a trichotomist who believes we have three. But there's an ancient uh, heresy known as Apollinarianism, which argued that Christ was human. He had a human body uh, and he had basically everything about him was human except this one item that he had the divine logos. And this was condemned as a heresy in the ancient church. And so Zinzendorf was quite strong with this individual. And he said this individual is in uh, doctrinal error. 
Um, and eventually this individual actually leaves the community. So his Christology is entirely orthodox and it is a hill that he would die on. Similarly, um, the role of the spirit, both in the unification of the church, as well as the imbuing of agopic love, agape love between believers, um, he's quite strong on. So he's, uh, he has a very uh, prominent role of the spirit in the church, that the spirit begets believers as children. He even refers sometimes the Holy Spirit as the mother spirit, the one who is birthing believers. Um, similarly, he has a very high view of scripture. So against kind of modern impulses. So as the enlightenment is sweeping through Europe, there's a general turn toward higher criticism and the Old Testament being separate from the New Testament. And even the New Testament authors may be having different theologies. And Zinzendorf rejected this. Zinzendorf holds all scripture to be inspired and inerrant. He holds all scripture to be the breath of God, the divine word of God. Um, so, you know, Christology, spirit, scripture, uh, on these items, these are hills to die on for him. Um, but beyond that, and I think this holds kind of a key, perhaps, to modern-day ecumenism. Beyond that, he had many doctrinal views, both uh, that we would consider orthodox, others that we might consider eccentric. But beyond those core beliefs, uh, he argued that Christians need to be able to meet in unity and set aside non-core doctrines um, from that kind of discussion. So I'm not sure if that was helpful or not. And, and yeah. you can feel free to. Yeah. Ask Let me ask this question in, in the tail end of that, because it, it seems as if a lot of Protestants are fleeing to look for religious liberty. So he's often numbered among the Protestants, Zinzendorf. But as you're talking about ecumenicalism, nothing that you mentioned I could detect would distinguish him exclusively within uh, the guise of Protestantism. Certainly, we believe the scriptures are inspired. Certainly, we believe in the divinity of the Son. But those are also things that we would say are historic Christian things, not historic Protestant things. And someone in the live chat earlier, uh, they were just, uh, what is it? I think it was B.J. Allen, I think. He says, wow, uh, why haven't uh, people heard of this guy? Like, just, man, there's just a ton of fantastic character things as we're talking about his stories we're talking about his life it's like man this guy was a bit of a renaissance man i mean he could he's got the poetry thing he's multilingual you know he he's memorized shorter catechisms by early ages you know he's doctrinally unifying the body of christ he's pursuing love is it possible that the reason this guy doesn't have a ton of traction is that frankly he's kind of a proto charismatic and is extremely and as a proto charismatic is extremely ecumenical and willing to work with a lot of people that typical Protestants wouldn't be willing to work with. Is, is that partially the reason that we don't really know a ton about the guy? This is an excellent question, and, um, and that could be a reason. I, I honestly haven't thought about that being a reason, but I think that's an excellent insight, and, and that could easily be one of many reasons. Um, but it's, it's truly a historical anomaly that Zinzendorf is not better known these days. Uh, during the 18th century, everyone in Europe, and or let me put it this way, anyone who was educated in Europe and anyone who was educated in North America would have known who Zinzendorf was. He was one of the most visible figures of the 18th century. I mean, Benjamin Franklin uh, publishes several of his sermons. Uh, in 1738, he establishes a community called Hern Hog, uh, and the last four letters are H-A-A-G, which is different than his first community, Hern Hut. And John Wesley visits Hern Hog 
And he has a deep and moving kind of emotional uh, response, both to the community and to God. And when he's writing to a his heart brother, strangely warmed, I believe. Exactly. <laughs> and when he's writing to his brother, he even says, when will this Christianity fill the entire globe? I mean, he was j- in, in, in elsewhere in the letter to his brother. He even says that he could have stayed his whole life because these people have a heavenly conversation. And, and th- this is the type of Christianity that he believes uh, should be spread all over the globe. Um, and, and again, with the connections he builds beyond uh, Wesley and Benjamin Franklin, uh, he's, he's rubbing shoulders with all of the movers and shakers in society. So uh, why, you know, I could take a theological stab at this. I mean, historically, there may be reasons. Uh, he was banished from Saxony. He dies bankrupt. Uh, the Moravians kind of go on with his legacy, but they also pick up new teachers. So, so perhaps that's a reason. But theologically, truthfully, and for a lot of our listeners, if we do believe that uh, God remains sovereign, yet there is a force in this in the cosmos that is actively fighting against things that are positive toward um, the building up of the body of Christ, that are that are uh, that is fighting against what God wants to do to end this age. I would say theologically, there is just an element of I believe he got a lot of things right, <laughs> and there is an enemy that's fighting to uh, veil people from things that are right. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. uh, he's moving toward the unity of the church. He's moving toward a religion of the heart. He's trying to escape Christianity from pure intellectualism. And perhaps there was a spiritual force who was not so happy about that. And I'm fine with uh, saying that. I think I think that that we have to kind of understand that that is a force in Christian history that perhaps we don't want to ascribe when we're just doing a secular study of history. So hmm. it's interesting. Well, it does remind me of a quote from him from uh, uh, it, it goes something like this. Uh, actually, it's real simple. Zinzendorf, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. <laughs> so it seems like he kind of did Nailed that. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, it seems like he kind of did that. But honestly, it, it reflected a philosophy of his. It was like, I, I'm not out here to make my name great. And of course, he already started out like he was born with a great name. And, uh, and I mean, gosh, it rings right off the tongue, right? Von Zinzendorf. But, but a great name and reputation and society and wealth and, and high class and all of that. So, uh, but to your point, he rejected it all. And so um, Anyway, I just I think that is an interesting connection. I wonder how much of it just reflects his sort of general ethos and just the way he lived. But um, to shift gears a little bit, but maybe not entirely, um, I, I'm thinking about just his pietism and uh, and the role of that. And for some of our people, they're going to need a definition of that. So how would you define it? And then talk about how this played a role in his life. I know it was very important to him. So as we talk about this ethos, we talk about just kind of his way of doing things. Uh, we've talked about how he was ecumenical. And some would say that he, that being ecumenical and, uh, and the sort of pietism movement that these sort of batted heads, and I, I'm curious, did, did they for him? And so what is, what is pietism? How did it express itself? How did it inter- interact with with ecumenicism uh ecumena help me out there words are hard ecumenical movement and then we talk about (laughs) ecumenism and within that context um pietism was a movement within lutheranism that sought to restore emotional warmth 
to what seemed to be an increasingly intellectual uh, exercise. Um, and it basically has two major forerunners. The first uh, person's name is Philip Spinner, and the other individual is someone who actually was uh, Zinzendorf's principal at his boarding school named uh, August Franke. And pietism, beyond kind of wanting to uh, restore kind of an emotional uh, aspect to the faith, they also had several items that they felt were uh, not being addressed in Lutheranism, despite there being uh, the Reformation and Luther himself wanting these elements within Christianity. So the first item of pietism that's uh, expressed by Spenner is that we need to return to the word. And it shouldn't just be the clergy reading the Bible, but lay people need to read the Bible alike. So then this leads into a second point of pietism, which was the establishment of a universal priesthood. Um, and this is what Luther said. This is nothing new. But the issue was that as the Lutheran church kind of became married to the state very early on and the establishment of seminaries and the training of clergy, it just kind of fell to the back burner. And Zinzendorf said, well, first of all, the pietist said, and Zinzendorf inherits this, that the laity need to take an active role in the church. There shouldn't be this clear divide between clergy and laity. Um, a third item of pietism, just by virtue of the word piety, uh, they did strive to be holy. Um, they had a renewed emphasis, not just on holding right doctrine, but also having a right living. And so along with this, that there should be a practice of Christianity that goes alongside a knowledge of Christianity. Um, the fourth item, within certain strands of pietism, and this is the strand that uh, Zinzendorf himself picks up, is that infighting over doctrine is a poor example to unbelievers. <laughs> And therefore, it needs to be replaced with a spirit of love and meekness. And then another item that Spenner really emphasized was that seminary education should place a greater emphasis on devotional life. It shouldn't just be, you know, so-called book learning, but it should also include prayer. It should also include perhaps fasting and other practices. And really, the, the if you wanted to sum up pietism in kind of one sentence, it's a shift from preaching to the mind and the outer man to practicing what Spenner and others believe was true Christianity to the inner man. And then just one other item. Uh, some pietists were highly schismatic or separatist, right? And really, if you want to kind of outline pietism on a chart, you could almost have a tree that branches off into three various streams. So the first was Holly pietism. So Holly um, is, it was the name of the Patagogium that, uh, or sorry, the name of the city of the Patagogium that Zinzendorf went to. So that was one uh, strand of pietism that was much more devotional and emotional uh, than the other two strands. And then you had a second strand known as the radical pietist. So this is probably what uh, both Michael and, and, and Josh are wanting to refer to. The radical pietists were ones who they said, if you have any ounce of your life that's not holy, you need to be separated from us, right? So they very much emphasized holiness over unity. And then a third strand of pietism was the Württemberg Pietists, which was a, another city uh, that kind of engaged in a mix of both the emotional and effective, as well as the intellectual strands of the Pietist movement. And so what Zinzendorf does is he, in a really wonderful way, and again, maybe I'm a bit biased, but in a really wonderful way, uh, somewhat like a Brita filter, he takes three different sources of water and he filters out the things that he feels are not so helpful. And in the end, you have the community at Hernhut 
which in a significant sense could be viewed as a fourth strand of pietism. Uh, religion of the heart for sure, uh, lay people and clergy alike for sure, uh, radical egalitarianism with men and women being uh, treated very, very similarly, um, the scriptures being uh, given to all individuals that they need to study the scriptures on a day by day, even moment by moment basis, um, but also just a very strong broadness that this religion of the heart extends to non-pietists, to Roman Catholics, uh, to Schweckenfelders and Socinians, who, and Socinians in particular, who are, who are, uh, you know, broadly, <laughs> broadly heretical. Did you say ways. Schweckenfelders? Yeah. Man, that's more fun to say than Zinzendorf. That's a blast. I got to learn that <laughs> word. I don't even know how many use it in a, like, a flow of a regular conversation, but it sounds fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they're, they're also, and, and the Schweckenfelders, by the way, are who he kind of comes into fellowship with in Pennsylvania and there's still Schweckenfelder churches, I believe, in Pennsylvania. I'm not entirely sure. Every time you say it, man, I'm going to laugh just a little. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing. The people that Zinzendorf are talking to, they come up with pretty crazy names, pretty crazy theologies. Um, and, and actually, the early years of Hernhut, perhaps because of the names, but mainly because of the theologies, they're experiencing ruptures and fractures and schisms. Uh, but Zinzendorf, first and foremost, he's saying, regardless from all the way from your crazy Schweckenfelder to your kind of vanilla Baptist, uh, we all need to meet in harmony. We all need to take the bread and the cup together. Uh, we need to live into the reality of John 17. <laughs> okay, so you, you've brought up some really great points, uh, some things that I'm really interested in, and, and that distinction of piety, pietism, and the different strains of pietism really helps clarify to me because I'm more familiar with the pietism of like the Puritans rather than the pietism within this like Lutheran vein, Hernhut-esque Puritism, or not Puritan, sorry, the Hernhut version of pietism. So I'm getting my words mixed up. Anyway, so I'm, I'm thankful for that uh, distinction there that you made. But you're also mentioning this kind of uh, uh, you know, seeking of ecumenical work. It's probably a necessary time to start talking about the refugees that are fleeing for religious liberties and, and end up under Zinzendorf's kind of care leadership. Can you maybe explain to us uh, how the refugees ended up showing up in Zinzendorf's province? Province might be might, might be the wrong word uh, under his you know under his, the land in which he ruled. Uh, explain yeah. that to us, and then also the diversity of those refugees and how. Uh, his ecumenical desires really helped shape and, you know, foster uh, work within this community of very diverse Absolutely. refugees. So what ends up happening is he goes on his Vanda Yah. <laughs> I'm going to put a lot of words out that I know Michael right now is going to be laughing. He's giggling. He's giggling. giggling. <laughs> Mind the so after his Vanda Yah, which was, which basically for European no nobility was a year right after you graduate from uh, boarding school where you try to build up a network of uh, diplomats and statesmen and kings and princes and, and basically build up your network for the rest of your life. And he uses this time to connect with a lot of different church leaders, so pietists, mystics, Socinians, Roman Catholics, Lutherans. And he has a moment where he comes before this painting called the Ecce Homo by uh, Domincio Fetti. And underneath uh, the painting is this uh, inscription. It says, all this I did for thee, what doest, thee, what doest thou for me? And so Zinzendorf, in response, realizes his whole life from this point on is going to be for the gospel. And so a couple of years later, he buys Bethelsdorf, 
from his uh, grandmother, who was a baroness, and uh, establishes it as a community uh, named Herrenhut. And he does this while he's working uh, in the Holy Roman Empire in Dresden, uh, in the Saxon court. And he receives communications from an individual named Christian David in 1722, uh, who is a leader of the Unitas Fratrum, so the, uh, the, the Unity of Brethren, uh, which is an ancient pre-Protestant group uh, who had been kind of uh, fled into exile in Bohemia uh, after the execution of John Huss. So just to give a very brief, maybe 30-second historical background, uh, Luther was not the first Protestant. Actually, there are other individuals in the 200 years prior to Luther who had taken their own stands uh, against the Roman Catholic Church. Just none were as widespread or, um, or as influential. So one of these individuals was named Jan Hus. And when he and, and basically everything that Luther wanted to promote were things that Hus had said earlier. And after Hus died, you had the, the Hussites as well as the Unitas Fratrum, who had to flee. And so they went into various parts of Bohemia. They were living as refugees. And um, within uh, Unitas Fratrum history, they refer to this time as the hidden seed, uh, that these individuals were kind of living below the radar for a couple hundred years, held these beliefs, but were always living as refugees. Anyways, in 1722, their leader, Christian David, uh, gets in touch with Zinzendorf, asks him if they can take refuge uh, on his land. And he says, of course. And so uh, what in short order, between 1722 and 1727, over 300 Moravian brethren, so the Unitas Fratrum eventually renamed themselves of the Moravian brethren, over 300 of them come to live at Herrenhut. And along with them, and again, I'm just going to continue to list off the same types of denominations, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Socinians, um, uh, uh, um, uh, separatists. Uh, pietists, even mystics, they're all coming to live at Herrenhut. And basically, Zinzendorf only has one requirement, and that is you need to be serious about your Christian faith. And the agreement he made with them is he would pay for all their expenses, they could live there for free, but they had to continually engage in Bible study, hymn singing, and communal, uh, communal fellowship in which doctrines would not be a source of schism or division. And that was his unique requirement. You, you attend congregation every day, uh, you read your Bible every day, you sing hymns every day, and in return, I'll pay for all your expenses. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, it sounds so, like a good deal. I mean, you'd think- Yeah, uh, it sounds pretty sweet. It sounds like Teen Challenge. <laughs> no. <laughs> teen Sorry. Challenge. Too soon. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so talk to us about the hundred year prayer movement. I, I'm curious because you you talk about they're coming together for Bible study for prayer. I mean, I'm sure they did other stuff. They had to like, I don't know, I guess grow crops and and I mean they had to find a way to feed themselves too. Well, I mean, I, I guess he's providing for them. I don't know how he's providing if he's shipping it in. I, I don't. I'm trying to picture just what daily life looks like, and I've I've read a bit, but more what I read is centered on this hundred year prayer movement. So, um, so I guess I asked two questions. There I go. But like. So daily life, if he's providing for them, is he just providing the land and they get to use it as they want to provide for themselves? And then they just pray and worship for a hundred next hundred years. Kind of just, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they definitely have, um, not, they have, they do build up a community that's not entirely only theologically focused. For example, they begin a Heron hut orphanage, um, 
they do grow food on the land. So they are carrying out like day-to-day necessities for sure. Um, you know, manna is not falling from heaven as far as I know onto Heron Hut. Like they do need to take care <laughs> of uh, their necessities for sure. Um, but to answer your question about the 100-year prayer movement, let me just back up a bit and talk about a couple of the fractures in the community, what happens um, in 1727 on August 13th. And then out of that kind of comes this prayer movement. So as I mentioned, between 1722 to 1727, you have all these groups moving. First of all, 300 Moravians, but then all these other different Christian groups. And so despite Zinzendorf requiring them not to have doctrinal disputation, guess what they begin doing? They begin debating about doctrine. (laughs) And so in 1723, there are arguments about the Eucharist, whether or not it truly transforms into the body and blood of Christ or not. In 1724, there's a pastor named uh, Roth, R-O-T-H-E, who begins debating about how closely they need to adhere to Lutheranism or not. In 1725 through 26, there's an individual named Johann Kruger who arrives and says that Zinzendorf is the beast 666 and that Roth, the Lutheran pastor, is the false prophet. Um, And so... And this whole time, by the way, Zinzendorf is in Dresden working in the Saxon court. He's only occasionally traveling back and forth. So the community is going kind of (laughs) wild while he's gone. And as a result, um, he decides to resign from his post in the Saxon court and return to Herrenhut to deal with all of these issues. And again, what's quite wonderful, and I don't mean to build up a man. I mean, every man is sinful. I'm sure there are many things about him that probably, uh, you know, could have been better. We're not, he's not perfect. But when he returns, he refuses to exercise his authority as a feudal lord. So he doesn't just step in and say, you're all done. And actually, because people are calling him the beast and they believe that he's evil, he doesn't even go to live in his manor. He actually chooses to live in the Hut Orphanage to kind of parse out all these issues. So he's not living in his castle uh, and, and he's just living with orphan children while he's trying to deal with all of these issues. And what, and so basically what he does when he returns is he starts having individual Bible studies with each one of the inhabitants. And he begins having uh, communal hymn singing meetings um, so that there wouldn't be doctrinal disputation, but people would get back to scripture and they would begin singing hymns, and enjoying a personal affectionate relationship with the Lord in the midst of all of this kind of chaos. And as a result of this, uh, first of all, in a pretty divine set of circumstances, Kruger, the guy who is saying he's the Antichrist, uh, he actually goes insane in January of 1727 and ends up leaving the community and lives out the rest of his life as a homeless beggar. Hmm. And while these Bible studies and hymn singing meetings are going on, Eventually, the people who have been living on Zinzendorf's dime this entire time come to believe he's not the Antichrist. (laughs) And and they uh, agreed to form a brotherly agreement. And this brotherly agreement has many different statutes. And some of them are very basic and doctrinal. The triune God in scripture are the unique source of revelation. Uh, But others are very emotional and they uh, focus on concord and harmony uh, amongst the brothers and sisters in Herrenhut. They say that no single individual is a leader. Only Christ is our leader. Uh, There should be no vain talking, no criticism, no gossip. There should only be words of love toward one another. 
So he creates this agreement with them that then leads to what is referred to uh, by the Moravian church as the golden summer of 1727. And the reason it's a golden summer, first of all, from May to August, they're living in harmony. They're living in a very positive circumstance. But on August 13th, 1727, uh, they're breaking bread. So they're, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And while they're celebrating the Lord's Supper communally, all of the people living in Hernhut simultaneously experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is the Pentecostal experience of August 13th, 1727. Now, I know that the Remnant Radio uh, is very much situated within the charismatic tradition. Yeah, bro, I'm uh, speaking in tongues over here while my mic's muted. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. sorry, keep going. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I thought, so I thought what you I wanted just... to say about it, though, is that this outpouring I thought you were just saying Schweckenfelders. Sorry. <laughs> so other than Schweckenfelder, other than that, which is a speaking in tongues by itself, for sure. <laughs> Uh, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit doesn't have the outward manifestation of gifts, but all of the congregants simultaneously, and we have diaries of dozens of these congregants. We have the autobiography of Zinzendorf. We have the autobiography of several other of the main leaders in the community, and we have biographers who have looked into this. Actually, my master's thesis there are several pages that were never before translated that are now translated into English so people could actually see uh, what exactly is be happening and being said by individuals experiencing this experience. And every single individual at Hernhut simultaneously receives the Holy Spirit poured out upon them as agape. And Amen. all of a sudden, they cannot but love each other. And... For the, for the rest of record, or recorded uh, diary entries of the Hernhut community throughout the 1720s and 1730s, there are no schisms, there's no doctrinal disputation. You just have these accounts of love, divine love, and the spirit moving among them. And so uh, just a couple weeks later, after this Pentecostal experience, I believe it's August 27th, uh, but if anyone out there wants to Google it, and it's August 28th, I'm sorry. I believe it's August 27th. Uh, 48 individuals from the community, 24 men, 24 women, they covenant to pray, e uh, to each pray for one appointed hour to constitute a chain of unending prayer. So you have one man and one woman designated for one hour of a day, and there are 48 of them, so two every hour for each 24-hour cycle, to pray in an unceasing chain of prayer. Now, what's really remarkable, though, is this extends way beyond Hernhut, way beyond Zinzendorf dying. They end up praying for the next 100 years without ceasing. Come on. This was a practice in the Moravian church. Wow. So, but it started, it started as like one person at a time in a chain, right? But then didn't it become more like a we're all together praying kind of prayer meeting? Did it, did it kind of shift after a while? Well, People obviously had to sleep, and um, right. and there were uh, dozens of other cities and communities, um, I don't even know what the best word is, I guess community, uh, like Hut that were replicated across Europe and North America. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like a huge communal meeting all the time, but the Moravians always had someone or small groups or small meetings of people praying for 100 years. Um, and again, from a historical standpoint, this is amazing. From a theological standpoint, it is quite likely 
what led to the Lord's blessing upon their missionary movement, which was uh, quite extensive. Yeah. yeah, and I'm fascinated too that it was all sparked with them part partaking of the Eucharist together. Amen. Any expansion upon that at all that you can give us? I mean, they were dividing originally over the use of the Eucharist, and it was participation collectively and in then the they're Eucharist. Like, Let's just take it, and then they loved each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk about that for a second. Well, I I don't know what else to really say about that other than when we participate in unity in Christ's own body, um, the Lord will honor that. And in this case, he honored it with the outpouring of the spirit. And and honestly, when we talk about the bread and cup, let's take all the theological arguments out. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, real presence, memorialist views, whatever. The as case long is. as we agree that transubstantiation is wrong, I'm fine to take all of those. I'm just kidding. Keep going. Keep going. It's not <laughs> okay. this podcast. Keep going. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll, I'll say this. Like we're talking about ecumenism. I obviously have my own views of, of the bread and cup as well. Um, but this first and foremost when the lord institutes it at the last supper he just says do this until i come and he doesn't say argue about what the bread and cup are any of this it simply is the mark of unity for the church right mm -hmm. and i think in a small setting you know only several hundred settlers at hernhut the fact that they were willing to set everything aside come and take the one body one cup and maintain some sense of visible oneness uh this was enough to gain the lord's blessing as expressed by the outpouring of the holy spirit um mm. and so i would say this i would say today when we come to the bread and cup regardless of what denomination you're in regardless of what whatever uh bible chapel or local congregation you're in it, it behooves us it does uh perhaps it should shift the way we approach the bread and cup to recognize that this truly uh and whatever word you want to use is either representative of or uh, gives the real presence of or Christ is above and below the elements. Whatever words you want to use, the point simply is this. The bread and cup are for the unique one mystical body of Christ. Mm -hmm. All believers are represented in this bread and cup, right? We're incorporated yeah. into the body of Christ. And by virtue of that, on one hand, it represents Christ's individual body broken on the cross for us. But on the other hand, we're told that we're also being formed into one loaf, right? So, mm -hmm. so this should be the unifying factor. And again, when believers truly all have this view and come to the bread and cup in this way, the Lord answered and he answered with the outpouring of the spirit and he answered with a hundred years of unceasing prayer. Amen. So I've got to ask a question that's on everyone's mind right now. It's come up in the, context, uh, in the comment section multiple times already. Uh, this guy is egalitarian. This guy is leading a 24-hour prayer movement. Uh, this guy is encountering the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and is working with a diverse group of Christians from like different theological backgrounds. Is this an actual photo of Count von Zinzendorf? <laughs> That's, everyone's asking this question. Um, do you want to weigh in on it? On right? the audio, he just showed a picture of Mike Bickle. <laughs> I literally just googled the picture of Mike Bickle, and I'm like, this is this sounds pretty familiar to somebody I know. Uh, Count, anyway, Count I, Von Bickle. Count Von Bickle. Okay, that's his new hashtag. Everyone start it. Count Von Bickle. That's like forever now his new name. I love it. It's it's the best. Um, but no, but some similarities I'm seeing. I'm detecting potentially. 
Okay. Uh, Michael, <laughs> there's, real question, there's really nothing Michael, you don't have answer. to answer that. I just put cameras on people I could, I and make them uncomfortable. I read your face, Michael. You were like, I I don't know if that's a question or it's you're not. just making it's not a, a question. So, oh, that's great. Okay, I'll I'll ask you a question. Let's talk about the missionary fruit. We we've alluded to it over and over again. It certainly sprung from the communion, which leads to incredible unity and love and night and day prayer, and then this huge missionary thrust. So talk to us about the missionary thrust. We, we, you've given us the ratio. The ratio is insane com- compared to what was taking place uh, in, throughout Christianity in, in Europe at the time. Um, but yeah, just talk to us some more about this missionary movement. What shape did it take? What did it look like? Uh, they like sending people out two by two. They go into the uh, West Indies. You know, what, what, what's happening? Tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, one thing I will say is within kind of uh, evangelical Protestant uh, circles, obviously Roman Catholics get a bad rap for various reasons. But one thing that they were generally quite good about and you, and you see this even with the Jesuits in China in the 16th century. They were really into evangelizing because they, they hold a view of soteriology that the three of us would disagree on. But they, they viewed that, you know, you need to have works. It's not just faith. Like there's, there needs to be a presentation of the gospel, right? And Protestants early on were a bit averse to this for two reasons. The first was from at least the 16th or 18th century they were really interested in debating about doctrine. So you would have like 50 page treatises on why consubstantiation is good and people who believe only in real presence deserve to be killed or put in jail or banished or whatever, right? So so that's just a historical fact. And then the second item is at least within reformed circles that had a very strong view of predestination, the general view, which sounds horrible to our modern ears, was, well, if you're born where the gospel is not preached, too bad. Like, that's just what God ordained. Like, he sovereignly ordained that you're not part of the elect, right? So within Protestant circles, there wasn't a huge move toward missionary um, t- toward missionaries in the 18th century. So it's because Zinzendorf did not subscribe to, the, to that view, um, beginning in 1728, he had plans to evangelize the whole world. Actually, in February of 1728, he speaks to his congregation. He says, we're going to evangelize the West Indies. Uh, Greenland, Turkey, Lapland, we're going all around the world. Ada, and Oklahoma. Through, yeah, even Oklahoma. Even Ada, <laughs> Oklahoma. Could anything good come out of Ada, Oklahoma? No, keep going. <laughs> and so three years later, in 1731, he's attending the coronation of King Christian IV, who is uh, the king of Denmark. And he meets a freed slave named Anthony. And Anthony basically talks about the atrocities of what's happening in the Caribbean, the atrocities in North Atlantic slave trade. And Zinzendorf basically realizes that, number one, the gospel needs to be brought to slaves. But number two, similar to how Paul says, to the Jew I became Jews, to the Greek, or to those not under law, I became like those not under law, to all men I become Mm -hmm. all things. He had a conviction that to bring the gospel to slaves, we need to become slaves. And this wasn't theoretical to him. So he told his congregation this view. And actually two men in his congregation answered this call. Uh, So two white Europeans who were living for free in Heronhut under a very generous uh, account that were living their lives, just praying, reading the Bible, singing hymns. 
um, they sold themselves into slavery and they went over on a slave ship and they preached the gospel to slaves in the Caribbean. Uh, and thereafter, every year, Zinzendorf was sending out individuals to preach the gospel. Uh, by the time of his death, and again, we're talking about communities that are only several hundred people each. And like I said, there were dozens of communities established. So you could say by the time of his death, and I don't have the exact number, but perhaps let's say, you know, 4,000, 5,000, whatever the case is. By the time of his death, there were for sure 226 confirmed missionaries sent to the Native Americans, sent to Greenland, sent to China, sent to the Caribbean islands, and sent across Europe. And this is the legacy they left behind. And, and these missionaries even met with the Greek Orthodox. They met with the Russian Orthodox. Uh, wherever there was an individual that the spirit was leading them to send someone, they sent them. And again, this was all on Zinzendorf's dime. He was the sole individual who was financing all of these missionaries. And this, again, is why in 1760 he dies bankrupt. Wow. Okay. So, he, so that's why he was bankrupt. He funded missionaries out of his vast wealth until he had no money left. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But this is, this is like the, this is a massive missionary movement. I mean, we're talking about fruit that remained, that remained, that remained, not including the fact that the Wesleyan movement, we mentioned this earlier, had, had been drastically impacted by by what happened uh, with the Moravians. Uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, there are even other Protestant um, preachers. I don't remember. I think they were Puritan, but I, I don't remember the exact context uh, that are that are coming over to the Americas with Moravians on board, singing hymns during a big storm. People think they're all going to die. And there are like great Protestant like guys that we look at today, they're, they're our heroes. I probably have one of their busts on the, you know, uh, on the shelf behind me. Uh, and they're, they've, you know, memorized long lengthy passages of scripture. They've been preaching sermons for years and they, they write things like, I questioned whether I knew God at all when they prayed. Like the, the Moravians, when, when they got around other Christian leaders, like these Christian leaders were drastically impacted. So, so in some sense there is direct and indirect fruit of this movement all from a guy that nobody knows existed. I mean, Michael's quote, yeah. preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. I mean, that's like, that's epic level righteousness stuff. That is uh, epic, dude. I'm fanboying on this guy right now. I I know, I know. Uh, wow, also, that's wild. Also, he, he loved Lutheranism and he was charismatic. <laughs> and he was Josh, you are so, you're the most obsessed with Lutheranism person I know that's not Lutheran. I don't well, get it. I but just, people don't I know what you are. Babies. I think you're just like that. People are always like, man, Josh is such a Calvinist. And you're like, I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I have classical Protestant envy. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm Protestantly homeless. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I love it, though. I love it all. <laughs> okay, well, we're kind of coming up on that time to uh, put together a few closing comments. And... Uh, Michael, love for you to share with us. If you were to just put in a nutshell, what you'd like for us to take home as it, uh, as it pertains to Count Zinzendorf, Josh, and I'll, I'll give you the floor to think about that too. And, uh, but I'll, I'll kick us off. Um, I, I think for me, what really impresses me is, is just how closely they kept to the fundamentals. Uh, like if you go with one, like the big two, the two greatest commandments, love God and love people, that emphasis on the heart in a season when people were so divided over doctrines and just a passionate love for God 
and love for one another. I, I think that really is fascinating and, uh, and an important takeaway. But then also, like, and I, to my church, I've called this the big four, uh, the devotion of the early church, the apostles teaching to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer that, that you see, like, it's like you have the big two and the big four, and they seem to get that right. And no wonder they had such a powerful movement because they just stuck to what God actually tells us to stick with. And I think we as believers get so uh, distracted and turned away and divided by a thousand different things. And it's just a, a you know, like we say uh, in our culture, uh, keeping the main thing, the main thing, it seemed like they did a really good job at that. But uh, anyway, those are, those are a few of my takeaways uh, along with the just baller quote of, uh, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. I mean, that that's great. So Josh, what about you? What would be some of your takeaways? Oh man, I'll, I'm going to give Michael a chance to, to chat. Michael, give us, you know, cause we'll, 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 we'll practice thunder theft, you know, and we'll steal your thunder and I don't want to do that. So tell us, tell us what are, when you're, when you read through Zinzendorf, you read through his life, the things that really excite you, I kind of already shared some of the things that I was interested in. Uh, you know, Michael, tell us, tell us, yeah, tell us one, like your big takeaways and then resources that you would encourage people to read when it comes to Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Again, a lot of our viewers are like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Tell us about his life. And they might want to study a little bit more later because nerds watch this program. So give us source material and some of those big takeaway points. Right. So first, the takeaway point. Um, So another quote from Zinzendorf, beyond uh, dying and being forgotten. And this is taken up by the Moravian church. It's actually some I believe today it's actually still their motto. Uh, so in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. And I think that this is something that is often forgotten in uh, modern day ecumenical movements. And I think it matches very much what we see in Ephesians 4, where in Ephesians 4, 3, we're told to keep the oneness of the spirit. And then all the way down later in Ephesians 4, it says, until we arrive at the oneness of the faith. And so what I think Zinzendorf gives us a window into is how, uh, despite chaos, despite disagreements, despite opinions and personalities, to maintain the unity of the spirit and by maintaining that unity, eventually arriving at the oneness of the faith, eventually hashing out doctrinal differences. It's not that doctrine's not important, uh, but that first and foremost, we need to be united in the spirit and we need to love one another. I think that alone... Um, he is the exemplar par excellence uh, of that type of outlook. Um, now for resources. Uh, first of all, like I said, you're on YouTube right now. If you have an extra two hours, <laughs> go in your YouTube search bar and search for the, uh, the rich young ruler who said yes, Zinzendorf. Um, this is a documentary that was put together. I mean, it's, it's quite dated. You'll look at it and you'll be like, why are they wearing those ties? But uh, it's, a very, it's a very wonderful documentary and it gives much more insight and detail than what we were able to cover in this podcast. Um, additionally, I just have this book. It's by Arthur J. Freeman. It's called An Ecumenical Theology of the Heart, The Theology of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And that's another great resource. It's a couple hundred pages. You can pick it up on Amazon. Um, <clears throat> Additionally, in the town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which we weren't able to talk about, uh, the, the Moravians also founded a community in Pennsylvania named Bethlehem. There are the Moravian archives. And so there are multiple individuals there who've written books and contribute to the Journal of Moravian Studies. So if any of you are uh, going to university or you have access to a university library, 
most online databases had access to the Journal of Moravian Studies. So that's another excellent resource, where, which is still currently being published uh, by many individuals who are part of the movement. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing all that. Uh, guys, uh, I think the Moravians are a spectacular example of one, uh, placing God first, love of brother first. Michael's mentioned that already. Uh, but then but then finding a way to get the gospel message out. And this is one area that concerns me when we talk about modern day ecumenicalism. Modern day ecumenicalism gets to the point where we don't want to fight over anything. So we actually stand for nothing. Um, and, and what I see that's unique about the Moravians in their regard to ecumenicalism, not that this is unique of ecumenical works across the board, but in relation to a lot of modern ecumenicalism, is that when you stand for nothing, you actually don't have anything to share. You have nothing left of meaning to communicate to the rest of the world. And the gospel message is a message of faith and repentance. It's one that says, this is sin, sin is wrong, repent of your sin, place trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and to, to be able to gather around the essential things of the body of Christ, such as that prayer, worship, communion, right preaching and teaching of the scriptures. So I would encourage people, as you're pursuing a real ecumenical spirit, as you're wanting to unify and follow examples of guys like Zinzendorf, uh, remember that those markers of faith and repentance, those markers of the way to Christ is belief and belief alone and turning from your sin, that those markers are the essential thing that keeps ecumenicalism from spiraling out into universalism. Uh, things that, again, as a Protestant, I am very much in protest of universalism uh, and making sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing, Christ and him crucified, faith in him alone. So uh, I guess that's partially my my altar call moment. Come, answer. I see that hand. I see that hand. No. Um, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program. Uh, Michael Reardon is his, his second time on the program, uh, which means that if you're out there and you want to watch another program that he's done with us, uh, he came on to talk about theosis with us, which is a really exciting program. Uh, you can go and watch that. And another Lutheran scholar, for that matter, uh, well, uh, John Cooper came on to talk about a theosis as we're talking Jordan. about Lutheranism. Uh, <laughs> did I say John Cooper? Jordan Cooper. I'm yeah. so Sorry, I apologize, Jordan. We've interviewed uh, and a then, John uh, too. You also came on to, to talk about, uh, well, you talked about theosis with us at ETS as well. So we've got a couple of clips uh, with uh, uh, Michael Reardon uh, with us here on Remnant and expect to do some more work with Michael in the near future. So uh, anything I'm missing there, Michael? Uh, he's from Canada. Canada, eh? Give us your best Canada accent. Well, I, I, I'm actually American. The best I could do is... <laughs> Uh, what's all that about? Sorry and A. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> it's pretty good. Pretty good. Guys, thank you so much. If you want to get uh, more from Michael, he gave some of that info up at the top of the show. So go check that out. Make sure to hit subscribe so you're notified when we come out with content just like this. Guys, there's like 75% of you jokers who are watching this content. You ain't subscribed by now. And here's the thing. I, I want to get that like cool plaque that says, hey, you got 100,000 subscribers. So go ahead and hit the subscribe button already, okay? Uh, help me meet some of those life goals. Uh, I, life goals, selling myself into slavery to preach the gospel is not there yet. I'm still working on sanctification to get there. But until then, I'm just aiming at that plaque. I'm really excited to get it. We'll put it up in Michael's office. That'll be my selfless act. He can put it up in his office. Uh, anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description for PayPal and Patreon if you choose to do so. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We're talking about healing. Do we declare healing, or do we pray for it? It's going to be an interesting program. We'll see you then.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.